0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The six personal stories you are about to hear were told on December 8th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Kindness of Strangers. Music was performed by Laura Chase.
1: And you can tell that- Our first storyteller is Bob Coghill. Bob is from Nanana, Alaska. He was born in Alaska, as was his dad. He's a liberal in a notoriously conservative Republican family. He wants to make this perfectly clear, particularly to the Bernie Sanders fans in the audience. Nanana is an Athabascan village at the confluence of the Nanana and Tanana Rivers. Bob's story and his whole life has to do with being raised in a remote interior Alaska village. Bob has always been uncomfortable as a very pale person. Right now, he's rocking quite a beard. Please help me welcome Bob to the stage.
2: Well, thank you for being here, and uh, wow, what a lot of people. I have my, my family, and all of my friends seem to be here. So um, I wanted to tell this story about, about where I'm from, which is Ninana, a little indigenous village on the, on the Tanana River. Um, I was in Ecuador a, week, a couple of weeks ago, and somebody asked me if this was the first time I'd been in a third world country, and I, I had to say no that I was raised in a third world country. So Nenana, um, Nenana, we settled, my family settled in Nenana 99 years ago. My grandfather bought a store there, or created a store there. My dad ran it for 45 or so years. My sister runs it today. Um, so we have 99 years in that, that community. However, most of the residents of the community have about 10,000 years in the community, so we're the newcomers on the block. Um, So my story starts, um, this is part one of my story, starts in in 1960, I was eight years old. My father, who we're gonna hear a lot about and question his judgment as a parent, um, he bought a bicycle for me and it was much too large. I think he thought that well, I can save myself the trouble of buying that next bike by giving him one that's huge. So the only way I could get started on this bike was to jump off of a box, which he had put in front of our house, and then pedal like mad. And, and um, I could go to only one other place in the town, and that was at the store where he had set another block for me to land on. <laughs> so I had a four block. Trip that I could take, or I could go just around the corner. And um, so Ninaana is very cold in the winter, and it flooded every summer. So there was the roads were basically silt, just this very fine silt. And as I was bicycling along on my two large bike, the silt monsters got my front tire, and I went into a ditch which was full of flood water and rose bushes, and I got tangled up, that bar there came up, and um, at eight years old, I wasn't worried about having children, but I I still did have two, so it it wasn't permanent. Um, (laughs) Joe came along, Joe was a big kid. I mean, I knew who Joe was, but I'm sure he didn't know who I was. Joe came along, and extracted me from the ditch, and he walked me with dignity back to my home with my bicycle, um, ignoring the fact that I had peed myself. So Joe has been my hero. Part two, and now we're going to go back to 1948. In 1948, my father and his brother had uh, had several little one-room cabins um, that were how should we say, were the, were the service places where, where women served the railroad workers and bachelors in the community. And um, you get the drift. And um, so he had these. Well, he fell in love with the Episcopal Missionary Nurse, um, with the angelic face, my mother. And um, he proposed to her. And she said, yes, but you have to get rid of those cabins. Um, So he went to his brother and said, Jack, we have to get rid of those cabins. Jack said, Bob, you can find another woman, but (laughs) love will have its way and the cabins were sold to poor people and um, the ladies went to Fairbanks and everybody was was happy. (laughs) Part 3 uh, 1968, 1968, I am 15, 16 years old, and my dad, of course, has this grocery store, and we delivered groceries, and we delivered groceries as far as uh, a club near Clear Air Force Base, um, which served at affordable prices. It, was, it served booze, um, it served burgers, and it served these, these women again. Um not the same women, yet another generation. And um, so why was my father sending me to a whorehouse? I don't know. Um, but there I was, and I, I arrived before school, six o'clock, in the, six, seven o'clock in the morning, I would arrive. And, um, and one day I arrived, and sitting with the groceries, delivered the groceries, and there's Joe sitting there with the woman who's in her dressing gown. and. Uh, so he calls me over and says, you know, Bobby, which is my real name, Bobby, this is, uh, you know, this is so-and-so, and um, anyway, he, uh, he bought me breakfast, and he sat me down by the youngest of these ladies, and she um, insisted that I put ketchup on my eggs, and that is, uh, there we go with the kindness of strangers. Um, <laughs> And part four is today. Today, Joe, Joe's mother passed away um, about three weeks ago. And Joe's mother was the mother of, an, of Miss Alaska. She was the mother of one of the presidents of Doyon, one of the chairman of Tanana Chiefs Conference, um, mother of the first girl I kissed. Um, she was a very important person, and I haven't been able to tell the story before, but now that she's gone, I can tell the story. Thank you very much, and have a good time tonight.
0: Our next storyteller tonight is Janelle Vondrashek. Janelle originates from Rochester, Minnesota, where she decided to greet the world by being born on the kitchen floor of her house in a snowstorm on accident. <laughs> Jenny recently graduated from Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with a bachelor's degree in nursing and procrastination. She's very new to Juno, having first arrived exactly four months ago to be a Jesuit volunteer AmeriCorps member in the Young Parent Healthy Teen Center at the Zach Gordon Youth Center. However, In the time that she has lived in Alaska, Jenny has climbed a few mountains, both physically and figuratively, walked home across the bridge in a rainstorm several times, ice skated to work, and been enchanted by the wondrous people and natural beauty around her. Jenny is known to make random animal noises, specializing in cat and goat, and has, I'm sure you could ask her to do some of those in a sec, and has a tremendously aggressive snap. Please welcome Janelle Von <laughs>
3: You. I didn't realize I'd be doing that today. But truly, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. One of the gloriously awesome, although still entirely intimidating things about moving to Juno only four months ago is the fact that everyone I've met since then has been a stranger. Anyway. <laughs> I want to bring you back to a Tuesday late this past May, One of my friends from college and I are sitting down to dinner, just finishing up and we're waiting for our check. Oh yeah, and we were in Disney World too, that's probably important. And like every other Disney World story, I was about to fulfill a childhood dream. You see, ever since I was about 10 years old, I knew I wanted to spend a year volunteering through a service program. So, Sitting across from me, I noticed that my friend was putzing around on her phone, so I decided to pull mine out. And I realized, I have a voicemail from a Portland number. And as I rose my phone to my ear, my heart went with it. This was the call I'd been waiting for. It was the call from Jesuit Volunteer Corps Northwest, telling me I'd been matched to a placement at the Zach Gordon Youth Center in Juneau, Alaska. Fast forward three months and a licensure to practice nursing later, and I found myself in the Portland airport waiting for JVC Northwest Orientation Week to begin. Well, to be honest, I actually really just wanted to meet my community mates, the five strangers who I'd be living with for the next 12 months. In fact, I was so eager to meet them, I booked a flight that would get me there an hour and a half early. You know, just in case anything got delayed or we got lost. This ultimately resulted in me being the fourth Jesuit volunteer to arrive. And so I waited as gradually more and more JVs slowly trickled in. And eventually the four of us became the five of us. then ten. Fifteen. 20, and finally, I saw her, my housemate, Christina. Our eyes locked, and we slowly made our way towards each other, and what happened next is something that I will always remember, for it not only defined our relationship, but it seemed to foreshadow what was to come as a JV community, and in Juno as well. As we reached each other, Christina opened her arms and gave me the most life-giving hug I've ever had. Meeting the rest of my community mates was just as heartwarming. And after spending a week of paperwork and square dancing together at orientation, the six of us JV volunteers hopped on a few planes and headed to Juneau with absolutely no idea as to what we were gonna do next. Luckily, when we arrived, we were met at the airport by three of the friendliest-looking strangers, who greeted us with embraces and cars to bring us to our new home, as well as plans for our next few weeks here. Not only that, but our first free days were brilliantly sunny, as if Juno itself were welcoming us here. I know, right? We live in a rainforest, and we didn't actually believe it. We had to Google it a few more times to make sure. Anyway. So... Around 24 hours of us arriving in Alaska, one of our support people who met us at the airport offered to pick us up and bring us so that way we could go watch the sunset in North Douglas. And it was in this moment as we were watching the sun slowly set behind the mountains in a rather anticlimactic way. I don't know why I remember this, but I do. This was when I realized, oh my gosh, I live in Alaska. So these first few days turned into our freeze-through months, during which we explored more and more the city, climbed our first mountain in Alaska together that wasn't Cordova Street, <laughs> and even experienced our first drizzle, and second, and third. More importantly, however, we have been met by more and more people who have embraced us as Jesuit volunteers with warm hearts and kind souls. I wish I had a more definite ending for you, but since I only came four months ago, I can honestly say that my journey is just beginning. And all I know is that everyone here watching and listening has contributed to making my childhood dream even better than I imagined. (laughs) (laughs) It tore me apart a little just to try to come up with just one instance of seeing where I've seen kindness of strangers. Because I see kindness of strangers every single day. A kindness of former strangers who have since become neighbors, co-workers, mentors, and friends. A kindness that still moves me to look up to the eye of Juno and say thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next speaker is Phil Campbell. Phil is not a professional storyteller, but he not infrequently tells them here at the church where he works. The last time Phil told a mudroom story a little over a year ago, his bum knee had not yet been replaced, his torn and bulging aorta had not been discovered, let alone repaired, and he still had two kidneys. Although he is eternally grateful for the kindness, not to mention skill and dedication, of numerous medical professionals who were strangers and that worked diligently to keep him alive, his story tonight is not about them, not directly anyway. Please help me welcome Phil.
4: That'll work, okay, I got it, all right. (laughs) She was not a stranger in the conventional sense. I had known her for over a decade. I first met her when I started pastorate in Denver. She was almost 90 and the oldest member of the congregation I served. She had moved to Colorado years before from West Virginia to be closer to family. Her name was Mrs. Jackson. Polite, dignified, proper. All the things I'm not are the words that come to mind when I think of her. She lived with a genteel formality I have rarely, if ever, experienced in Juno. <laughs> Mrs. Jackson was gracious by nature, but... Her politeness was also a tool in her survival kit. For you see, Mrs. Jackson was African American and early in her life she had learned to bridle her tongue as an awful but necessary accommodation to the racism she faced. Mrs. Jackson was determined not to return the indignities the in undignified taunts of her tormentors in kind, she always maintained her dignity. One expression of this was the way that those of us who knew and loved her who were not family always uh, addressed her, always Mrs. Jackson. No first name familiarity would do. This was her quiet protest against the slights that she had received. Then one day, it seemed that we noticed things were changing. Not a lot, but a bit. She, she began saying things that she never would have dreamed of saying before. We soon realized it was a sign of her developing dementia. She also became more and more confused, so much so that she had to move into a nursing home, and, and her unfamiliar surroundings increased her confusion. Soon she was not even recognizing, at least all of the time, people she'd known for years, including her children and her grandchildren. Curiously, uh, she never um, misunderstood my role. She always called me reverend and knew I was her minister. The fascinating caveat is that sometimes I was her black Baptist pastor from West Virginia from decades before instead of her white United Church pastor in Denver. One afternoon, about this time of year, I stopped by the nursing home for a visit. I entered her room and issued the customary words. Hello, Mrs. Jackson, how are you doing? Expecting a fine reverend and you in return. Instead, I was greeted by silence as she just stared at me. And I thought, this is it. It's happened. She doesn't know who I am. But then she spoke. But I was not prepared for the words she said. Why, Reverend, you're fat. (laughs) When did you get that way? I have to admit, her words stung me. I've long been sensitive about my weight ever since, oh, I don't know, first grade on the playground when the banter became sophisticated enough to be a commentary on the style of blue jeans we wore. All the other boys in class except for me and Rodney Garber wore slim fit, or at least regular fit. But me and Rodney, we wore huskies. (laughs) And even as a six-year-old, I knew that was a euphemism for fat. (laughs) Now, fat jokes are never funny, and under most circumstances, I would not recommend name-calling as an effective persuader for positive change. I mean, when David Carson yelled Fat Campbell across the locker room in eighth grade gym, it was hardly the motivation I needed to do something about it. But for some reason, When it was Mrs. Jackson, who had become a stranger to herself and would have been embarrassed eternally if she'd known what she was saying, threw caution to the wind and told it like it was, it was just what I needed to hear. Now, I know that it's not this way for everyone, but it turns out losing weight is something I'm pretty good at. I've had enough experience at it because keeping it off is not something I'm particularly good at, but here I am standing before you today at least 30 pounds lighter than I was then. Not to be mistaken for a fitness model or the thin man or anything, but slimmer nonetheless. Turns out Mrs. Jackson offered me a kindness. It was what I needed to hear. And it it only has one negative consequence, and that is that my dream job in retirement, well, I'm not sure I'm quite as qualified as I once was. (laughs) Ho, 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 ho! Santa Claus, of course. But this one disadvantage is far outweighed, pardon the pun, by all the benefits. And those strangers in the medical field that were mentioned in my introduction, the ones that tended to me after three major surgeries in three months a year ago, they kindly affirmed me for my ability to participate in my own recovery, and they credited it with the more or less good condition I'm in. but it may may have been that I would have never gotten this far had it not been for the strange kindness of a gracious lady who, when not in her right mind, called me fat. (laughs) And for that, all I can say is thank you, Mrs. Jackson.
0: Next up we have Mark Ridgway. He grew up in Ketchikan in Anchorage and he's lived in Juneau long enough to know he'd eventually get suckered into doing something like this. (laughs) He works for the US Coast Guard, has an enormous fear of public speaking, is married to the most beautiful woman in the world. Sounds like he's trying to earn points. And he recently sold the Gold town Nickelodeon theater to Donald Trump for seven dollars. Mark, did I miss the million in there? Mark Ridgway.
5: All righty. well, gifts, 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 gifts. Of course they they do take all sorts of kinds. Uh, plastic totem poles from China. Um, I was going to tell a story about an enormous moose rack that some Aleuts gave me, but uh, it was a pretty gruesome, the story, so I decided to pass on that. <clears throat> um, this is my Canadian story. So uh, I was in my 20s. I was like 20 years old, and I was stuck down in Washington State, uh, super broke, didn't have any money. And uh, I was thinking like, oh, okay, well, I got to get home. I got a commercial fishing job, and I was all set to hitchhike back up the Alcan. And my sister calls me up out of the blue, and all of a sudden she says, hey, I've got an Audi, turns out, and uh, I need somebody to drive it up the Aucan. And uh, so I say, yeah, absolutely. She even offered to pay for gas, which is awesome. And I almost didn't hear her when she said, I also have a sailboat. So she just bought this, like, gorgeous, my sister's a really good sailor, and she bought this 14-, 16-foot sailboat, just gorgeous sailboat, and it was on a little trailer, and I went and checked it out, and I go, okay, yeah, well, we can do this. Audi's got plenty of power. So I go around Olympia, Washington, and, uh, and uh, find a, a welder who can put a tow hitch on it. Of course, Audi's don't come with tow hitches, standard <laughs> package. And the guy looks at it, and he goes, okay, well, yeah, I can do that. <clears throat> and, you know, he did it. And he didn't charge me much, which is good, I thought, at the time. Uh, it looked like a good hitch. <laughs> so, so off I go. And, and it was great. It was spring. There were not a lot of cars, and it was beautiful weather. And I didn't get hassled at the border, first time for everything. Um, And I wasn't even really in a hurry, which you normally are when you're driving the Alcan. Uh, So I actually stopped, and of course, what do I find? A bunch of polite Canadians everywhere you look. Um, (laughs) It's about two days into the trip, and uh, I'm I'm pulling into, uh, I'm in northern B.C., and I'm pulling into, uh, uh, it's a four-lane, it turns into a four-lane highway, and I'm pulling into, I think the town's Prince Rupert, Uh, and it's a big corner, big banked corner, and I look back, and there's a the boat. And I checked the boat, of course, 100 times in the last two days. This time, though, the boat was, like, about 100 feet behind me. It's totally, <laughs> totally separated from the car. And I'm looking back in kind of horror and amazement, really. And there's sparks flying off, and the tongue was, it was amazing. It was like somebody was driving the boat. It was, like, perfectly going. And it, but it was getting pulled towards the outside of the corner, which was a high bank. So eventually, I'm, I'm looking, and it just disappears. So I pull over. I pull over, and I'm, of course I'm thinking, well, yeah, even the Canadians can probably trace a license plate, so. So I back up. <clears throat> I'm backing up the, on the shoulder of the highway, and actually this other car was pulling up then, there was this young couple in it, and they had actually been going the other way, and uh, as, I, as I got out of the car, this young guy runs up to me and goes, oh, man, did you see that thing? It just flew off. It just flew off. <laughs> I'm going, yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, so I go up to the bank, right, and it says, hi, bank. And of course, what am I going to find? I'm going to find shards of fiberglass and twisted metal and maybe a little sail flapping in the breeze. Um, I peer over, and way down there is this just little muskeg with the f- print of a boat in it. <laughs> and uh, it's got the trailer outline. And then like 15 feet beyond that, kind of sitting on a bush, there's the boat, and it doesn't, like, it doesn't have a scratch on it. I'm like going, oh, this is great. And then I realized, like, how the, hell am I, how the heck am I going to get up there? Like, uh, so I'm thinking, well, as I'm thinking, like, okay, well, I can take the plate off. And I don't even notice this big, huge uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police guy had pulled up and is standing right beside me. <clears throat> huge guy. And he just is really quiet. He's just looking down. He goes, oh. and the And the young guy's there. It just flew off. It just flew off. And, uh. And and the RCMP guy just goes, well, all right then, and he turns around and he walks over the highway, and uh, and he like starts pointing at cars and he's like like it's the most natural thing in the world. Of course, of course that's what you're gonna do. And so before you know it, there's like uh, he pulls over a semi and there's his pickup truck and like now there's eight guys sitting up on on the top of this road, and then he goes, all right boys, and it was just the weirdest thing. So. We all, you know, he kind of just herds us down there, and we all go down this steep gravel thing. And, uh, and like 45 minutes of work, you know, everybody's grunting and lifting at once. And, uh, and like every five minutes, you know, we stop and rest. And, and every time we rest, I get to hear the young guy tell somebody else, hey, man, it just, I saw it, he just flew right off. And, uh, and so anyway, but we get it all the way back up to the road in like 45 minutes an hour. And you can't tell anything except these big globs of muskeg stuff still stuck to it. And, uh, and that was it. Um, people just kind of went back to their car, and I, I thanked them profusely, like, hey, thank you very much. And, uh, and, of course, the last guy to leave was a trooper who, like, you uh, he, he might want to get that hitch looked at. <laughs> uh, I said, okay, yeah, you know, so I, I ended up going into town and finding a hardware store, and, and i having somebody look at the hitch, and it was a, turns out it was a, a lock washer, 15 cents, 12 cents Canadian. Uh, <laughs> that's all I needed, that, a new bolt. <clears throat> so I get in the car, and I make it, um, you know, unscathed all the way back up. My sister still got the sailboat, but that's, my, that's about my favorite kind of gift. Uh, it's the kind of gift that it's a stranger shows up and just helps you out. And they don't—they don't expect anything in return, and they don't think they're going to get recognized for it. Of course, there was the huge RCMP guy, kind of everything. But they could have turned around and left. And I really do think that uh, that's one of the special types of gift in life. Um, And I can say that in the last 25 years or so, since then, I've—I've never passed a person on the highway who looks like they might have uh, might need help or had a boat fly off the trailer (laughs) on them. And they do say that uh, that life is all about. Uh, finding your gift and finding a way to share it. And that's a certainly certainly uh, an easy way to help a stranger out. So anyway, that's it. My Canadian gift. Happy holiday.
0: You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News, Juno. These stories were recorded on December 8, 2015 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was kindness of strangers. Curious? Visit
1: mudrooms.org. Phoebe Rohrbacher, known as a cigar chompin, whiskey drinkin', poker playin', pistol packing, good time gal. <laughs> Phoebe Rohrbacher is five foot, seven inches, about 155 pounds, has brown hair and glasses. She will be relocating to Fairbanks in January our loss. And she will miss most of you. (laughs) Look for her as the Miss Goldstream Valley. Here's Phoebe. Okay. I'm going
6: to start out by reading a letter to the editor from December 2007. I did not write this, um, but anyway. Uh, Hit by a car saved by physical fitness. Monday, December 10th, 2007. I recently celebrated my 90th birthday, but while I was out for a walk on November 17th, I was struck by an automobile on Evergreen Avenue near my home. Sound off on the important issues at. The driver experienced poor vision on the windshield and was distracted, attempting to eliminate the problem when the vehicle struck me, knocking me off my feet into a guardrail, a heavy steel guardrail. Um, The emergency room at Bartlett Regional Hospital spent three hours doing x-rays and multiple checks on my body, but found no broken bones. I have extensive lacerations on my legs and I am recovering slowly. This accident was as close to death as I ever care to be. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Therefore, I point to the urgent need for sidewalks. I believe this miracle is due to my excellent physical condition, and I'm probably the best walking advertisement for JRC slash the Alaska Club. (laughs) Uh, Sincerely, Dean Williams, Juno. Um, Yeah, who here remembers Dean Williams? Yeah. So I guess my question, you're probably all asking is, uh, what kind of a monster would hit a 90-year-old man with their vehicle? Uh, not only a 90-year-old man, a 90-year-old local tennis legend uh, and pioneer, Dean Williams. Uh, the answer is, you're looking at her. <laughs> it was me. Um, <laughs> I'm a monster. Uh, okay. So I guess my end of the story is uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's that I'm guilty. I did it. Um, but I, I had just gotten my license at a ripe old age of 20 years old. And uh, so I'd been driver for about six months, and it was, I was 21 at this point. Um, and I was in the house sitting for my friend's parents. I had borrowed their car. I was going to go to North Douglas. And... Um, I never made it to North Douglas. Uh, So anyhow, it was winter in November. I was driving down Evergreen Avenue, and um, the windshield was foggy. But it was one of those things where you think, like, oh, it's a little bit foggy, but it'll clear up. Um, uh, Bad idea. The the moral of the story is always clean off your windshield. Um, So anyhow, I'm driving uh, at a slow pace. Uh, and I and I realized, you know, it's actually very foggy. It's going to be really difficult for me to um, continue this journey if I... And dangerous. It's going to be dangerous, frankly. <laughs> um, but there's no sidewalks. <laughs> I might hit someone. I should probably clean off my windshield. So I lean down, and I, I'm trying to mess with the defrost buttons. And on your own car, you know exactly where that is. But remember, this is my friend's parents' minivan, so... Um, I don't know, I can't find it. I'm trying to press the buttons. I lean down for like five extra seconds, and that's when it happens. Um, the unmistakable thud of a human body. Uh, on a car, it's terrible. And I, I'm like, I'm smiling right now, but it was horrifying. And I, and I, I slammed on the brakes. And I just, I just looked up to heaven, and I said, what have I done? And I, I, uh, I jumped out of the car. And I looked around, and then nobody's... There's nothing. And I was like, it's a miracle. I was, false alarm. <laughs> um, I guess I didn't hit anything. Um, and that's when this spry, uh, very physically fit old man, <laughs> popped out from behind the car. And he's like, he's like, I just turned 90 years old. Can you fetch me my cap? And I was like, yes, I can. <laughs> so and so and his cap had flown over the guardrail. Um, and I uh, luckily I was like, oh thank god it was just his cap and not him. Um, so I, I ran down to get the, the hat and then I brought it back to him and he and then he I said, you know, we need to we need to call the police. I think I need to go spend the rest of my life in jail. <laughs> um, and, and he and I, but I was like, I don't have a cell phone. Do you have a cell phone? Probably not, you're 90. So anyway, uh, no, n- not that 90 year olds can't have cell phones. Um, but anyway, uh, neither of us had a cell phone, neither the young nor the old. And we, we uh, I, I, he's like, you can come to my house um, to use the phone. Uh, and so I was like, do you want a ride? <laughs> and he was like, no, thank you, I'll walk. <laughs> So he walked himself back to his house. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna, I'll speed this up, but he walked himself back to his house, uh, and I followed close behind, and he was looking behind him, making sure I wasn't going to finish the job. Um, so we get to his house, uh, and he's just so nice. I mean, the whole time, I'm hysterical at this point. I'm just, I'm like, why? am this is my life. Is, I almost killed a man. I, I, just, I just wanted to go to North Douglas, and this was not how I expected my night. And um, we get to his house, and we, uh, he come, we go in, and he says, Edna, Edna, there's someone I'd like you to meet. This is Phoebe. She just hit me with a vehicle. And, and Edna comes out, sweet as pie. Oh! what a pleasure to meet you. I mean, it was almost like, I was like, these people are, I want them to be my grandparents. If they, They're so nice to this person who just ran them over. Like, what would they be, how would they be to somebody who they actually know and love? So anyway, uh, Edna starts making me a cup of tea. Like, they're both just like, you know, this happens. Like, <laughs> and they, They give me some tea they give me some cookies and then dean is like you know why don't you just take some deep breaths you know uh he's like uh, you know this edna and i our names are palindromes d-e-a-n (laughs) e-d-n-a and i was like (laughs) oh i'm so glad and uh and then he's like you know this is the closest i've ever come to death and I fought the Japanese. <laughs> and I was a logger. <laughs> so what I'm hearing here is that this is a man who survived the Japanese Imperial Army, and an unregulated timber industry pre-OSHA. What they couldn't do, I almost did. <laughs> so anyhow, um, I, you know, as Kevin pointed out, it's really hard to repay this kind of kindness. Um, they they were there for me in my time of need, <laughs> and uh, I tried to I tried to you know I decided oh I I know I'll invite him to our family's Christmas party, um uh, just to to make up for it I guess uh, I'm sorry I ran you over do you want to have some cookies I don't know so anyhow uh, he came over and um he he entered our house he's looking around it's decorated and he's like. Oh, what lovely Christmas decorations. And as he said it, he just tripped over our ottoman (laughs) and tumbled uh, onto our floor, probably hurting himself again. So at this point, I I was thinking, you know, the kindest thing I can do is to distance myself. and let him live out the rest of his days in peace, which he did, he lived another five long years, and in some ways, I think I might have given him a new lease on life, so <laughs> so I guess who's the kind one now? No, I'm just kidding. Um, truly, though, I wanna, I, you know, Dean, if you're listening up there, uh, thank you for the kindness you showed me, um, and I'm really sorry that I uh, ran you over, so <laughs> thank you.
0: Our next speaker tonight is Chris Knight. Chris is a reformed lobbyist and political strategist who now teaches language and literature to high school students. He's a lifelong commercial fisherman and has spent decades hearing and telling stories on the decks of the boats. Chris lives in the shadow and alarm noise of the federal building <laughs> while sharing his free time on trails, on bikes, and at home with his little black dog, his friends, and his family. Post reform, Chris only shares political rants with righteously indignant friends. Chris Knight.
7: I'm not sure I can beat that story. That was really sweet. So, I was living in Guatemala, I was studying Spanish, and I'd been there a couple of months, and at some point I decided I wanted to go to Tikal National Park. That was in the northern part of Guatemala. And the night before I was leaving, I met up with some friends, a fellow from England, some other friends from Holland, and we sat down and we had a, what we'd, I guess, do anywhere, is we had pizza in Guatemala. And we showed up at this little restaurant, and we ordered our pizza, and we, we, Dude, what only what travelers do is we shared stories and ate this crazy odd, bizarre pizza. It had peas on it and broccoli and some strange sauce that I'm not sure what was in it, a cheese that smelled funny, and a mystery meat. Still don't know what what it was. The next morning I got up at three thirty and I left Antigua on a shuttle and I went to Guatemala City. And instead of spending 24 hours by chicken bus th- through the, the, the highlands of Guatemala, I actually was gonna fly that day to Tikal National Park. And I arrived mid-morning, and at that point, the night's dinner had started to affect me. I was feverish, not feeling so well. And this isn't an uncommon from traveling in Guatemala. As I got off the plane, I was really sweating. It was hot, of course. And um, I started to feel really ill. And so my first thought was, I need to find a place to stay. So I walked to Flores, which isn't too far from the airport. And I walked around a little bit. And everything I looked at was beyond what I'd been paying. I'd been living on about, I don't know, 15 to 18 kits all day, which is $3 uh, for food. And I'd been living on another. 10 to 20 is for wherever I was staying, which is another three to four dollars. So when I was traveling around in Flores, it was too expensive. It's very touristy. So I went to the neighboring town, which is more for the locals, called San Beninito. and I found a nice little Guatemalan lodging. It has two floors. It had, um, you know, it was all made out of concrete with a courtyard in the middle, and The rooms you know there's four or five rooms on the top four or five rooms on the bottom and at the end of the rooms there was a bathroom shared of course everybody shared the bathroom as I check in I really started feeling ill and as many of you know when you're traveling it's not uncommon you start throwing up so I started throwing up felt a little better went down to the tienda got some juice got some water knowing travelers rules you stay hydrated trying to put something in my body, went back upstairs, and I was throwing up. Now I was also, things were coming out the top, but things were also coming out the bottom. Pretty normal. (laughs) So, this went on, and I assumed by the next day I would start to feel better. I didn't start to feel better. In fact, it started getting worse. And again, I kept making sure I went to the tienda, to get some water, to get some food, try to put something in me. But at that point, as soon as it went in, it would come right back out in both directions. Uh, By the third day, it started getting pretty bad. And I remember like getting faint and sort of like falling down. And at one point I went to the bathroom, which was down, four or five rooms away, went to the bathroom, did my top and bottom release and I, I passed out. I was unconscious and I don't know how long I laid there, but I woke up to two campesinos. These are people, Guatemalan people from out in the bush who had come to this local town to sell their goods and they were standing over me. And so they tending to me and then I was out again. Next thing I know, I woke up in their room. I was in their bed, and they were sort of tending to me, and they were trying to put water in me, but as they tried to put water in me, it immediately came right back out. And I remember at some point thinking, this is not good. I need to get to the airport. If I can gather enough strength to get to the airport, I need to get to the airport and fly to Dallas. I figured if I could get to Dallas, I could get real medical care and like, Maybe you live. Of course, as I was thinking this, I passed out again. As I, as I sat there, I woke up the fourth time. Um, I woke up to a man's thumb in my throat. It was pushing something in my, in my mouth. And I realized it, it was, the man was actually putting a pill in my, in my throat. And he's trying to make me drink some water and maybe even some 7-Up. And I remember thinking, like he's obviously trying to help. I gotta listen. But while he's doing this, the woman is saying to me, um, pienso, va hasta, uh, "Pienso va uh pienso va a muerto," and she's saying, "I think he's going to die." <laughs> and so I passed out again. <laughs> the next time I woke up, the man's also putting a pill in me but the wife is standing over me, and she's cutting into my stomach. But it wasn't, she didn't have a knife. She was using her her hands, and she was massaging my stomach and, like, going into my guts. And I had spent three to four days just puking and the other, that my, my entire guts were turned inside out. And she was massaging my guts, working strength, you know, trying to, release something so stuff can move through and meanwhile her husband fito is is trying to put water in my mouth and that he gave me a pill and i remember at one point also thinking that i'm allergic to penicillin if he gives me the penicillin i'm dead either way by the next day i started to recover i started to actually pass water through i started to feel better and i often wonder if i hadn't gone to that town, if I hadn't shown up in that town and found that lodging, if I hadn't come across these two campesinos, if it hadn't been for the kindness of strangers, would I be here telling you that story today?
1: Our final speaker tonight is Tom Cosgrove, one of our storyboard members. He lives with his family along the concrete banks of Gold Creek in an area built on mine tailings and waste rock and commonly known as the Flats. We all knew this, Tom, but thanks for explaining it. (laughs) An accurate but uninspiring description. Tom draws inspiration from his inclined, challenged neighborhood and can accurately be described as a guy who passionately believes in the power of stories. That's very true. Please help me welcome Tom.
8: (laughs) President's Day weekend, 1991. It was my first winter in Alaska. I had moved from Chicago just six months before. Things were just coming together for me at this time here in Juneau. I had found a place to live, finally, uh, uh, at Third and Golden, downtown. Uh, Before that, I had been house-sitting, couch-surfing, and camping. It was just a small apartment in an old house that probably had been a grand single-family dwelling back in the day, but had long ago been divided up for those coming up and those heading down. I'd also just started a relationship with a woman, a woman I had met the old-fashioned way, in a bar. (laughs) Now, I had been going through some small-town culture shock. I mean, I moved from a place where you never run into an ex to a place where you can't avoid them. So I was trying to keep this particular relationship discreet. You know, below the radar. I, I just didn't want to deal with the small-town scrutiny. Sunday morning, 3 a.m. The phone rings. I'm crashed out over at her place after a night out. The next thing I know, she's shaking me. Wake up! Wake up! It's the police! They're looking for you. <laughs> what? They just want to know if you're all right. What? Your house, it's on fire. I was stunned. Not only was my building burning, but the police knew to look for me (laughs) over at her place. (laughs) So much for discreet. By the time I arrived, the building was engulfed in flames. The guy that lived below me had fallen asleep with a candle burning. And as I stood there watching the flames, One of the few people I knew in town, Bob Bartholomew, came bounding off the fire line. He was excited. He was finally using all of his volunteer fireman training. Isn't this great? Uh, no. That's my place. I uh, moved in a couple weeks ago. Oh. Sorry, dude. And he returned to the fire line with exuberance. (laughs) That evening, I lost almost everything I owned. Now granted, it wasn't much. I had moved here in a Toyota Corolla, but what I had was important to me. Photos, books that my grandfather had owned, and an Excellent collection of outdoor gear. Now to say that people helped me out is just an incredible understatement. People offered me places to stay. They gave me photography equipment, a tent, cash, top-of-the-line stoneware that we still use today, and lots and lots of T-shirts. Now, my favorite T-shirt that I got during this time was an Alaska Folk Festival T-shirt, a 6th annual. Now, at the time, that T-shirt was 17 years old, but it was never worn, still had a factory fold. I had thought most of my clothes had survived the fire. The uh, closet was the furthest from the flames, but the heat had weakened them. Some went into the washing machine looking great, but came out just looking like rags. I had one time put on a uh, dress shirt, and as I put it on, the entire sleeve came off. (laughs) Now, one of the other things that had come together for me during this time is that I had gotten a job at the Department of Transportation. And I knew that on the Tuesday after that holiday, my fire would be big news at work. Now, I had been dealing with lots of stuff. Now, not the least of which was, by Tuesday, my only pair of underwear was beyond the pale. I mean, I'd lost all the rest of them when the cardboard box I stored them in went up in flames. So under my 100% cotton dockers, I was going commando. Now I'm a guy that likes to get to work early, before the madness of the crowd. And our section's administrative assistant, she was an early bird too, and she was at my desk soon after arriving. Rosella was a devout Christian woman who wore modest prairie dresses and couldn't have stood more than five feet tall. I heard her as she was coming down the hall. And as she approached, I swiveled around in my chair, put my hands above, behind my head, leaned back and struck a pose of nonchalance. (laughs) Now part of that pose is that I had my legs spread. And unbeknownst to me, the seam in the crotch of those 100% cotton dockers had split in all four directions. (laughs) Giving that good Christian woman a very clear view. Rosella's eyes got wide and her mouth dropped open. It took me just a beat too long to figure out what was going on. And then it felt like my legs came together in slow motion. What happened next I consider a quintessential Alaskan moment. Rosella was a cabin dweller, she lived in the woods off the grid, and she had commandeered an unused cubicle and put in all the electrical gadgets she couldn't use at home. She often used break time to prep dinner on her Cuisinart. And in that cubicle was a sewing machine. She recovered before I did. Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go down the hall. You're going to go to the men's room. I'm going to go down there with you. You're going to go in the men's room. You're going to take off your pants. You're going to hand them out to me. I'm going to go sew them up and bring them back. So a tiny woman in a prairie dress, whom I'd known only weeks, sewed my pants and salvaged my dignity. And as I stood in that bathroom, looking in the mirror, naked from the waist down, I thought, oh my God, what would I have done? without these people. These strangers who live in this dismally rainy place. But I tell you what, I am so glad that I lost it all in a place like this.
0: This is KTOO News, Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on December 8th, 2015. The theme for the evening was kindness of strangers. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Alita Buss and Kristen Stouter. Additional help from Tom Cosgrove, Rich Boniak, Pat Roach, and Steve Sewing. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.